Thank you everyone for joining us here today for this really special and important uh, training, special considerations when representing immigrant youth. I wanted to thank everybody at the BBA, um, especially the delivery of legal services section, Noah, Ariana, Amir Friedman and Liz Matos just for making this training possible. Um, I had mentioned to them that, you know, we've been at pair just receiving many, many referrals for immigrant youth and we just are having such a hard time um, keeping up with how to um, provide legal services. So reaching out to volunteers and to pro bonos is just such an important um, thing that we're doing. Do enjoy the training today, um, but please do consider volunteering with PEAR. And I know Elizabeth will talk more about this towards the end of her presentation. Even taking one case can make such a difference in the life of an immigrant youth. So please do consider taking a pro bono case after this training or after the part two I am honored, absolutely honored and thrilled to have um, Elizabeth Badger with us. Elizabeth is a senior attorney at PEAR where she manages the Access to Justice for Immigrant Families Initiative. Uh, she provides like all of her time is uh, providing direct representation to immigrant children and families across Massachusetts in collaborating with community organizations that are working with the same population. Elizabeth received her JD from Boston University Law School and her BA from Dartmouth College. She has worked in the immigration field for nearly 20 years, focusing on representing non-citizen children, asylum seekers, victims of crimes, and persons in prolonged immigration detention. She's the recipient of many, many awards. You can check out her bio on the PEAR website. I think if I went through them all, we might take up too much of this uh, training section, but Elizabeth really is the to-go expert for um, representing immigrant youth, and I'm just really honored to, to have her here today, and I'm just going to hand over the presentation. Um, as many of you know, this is part one. Uh, today, Elizabeth is going to just talk a little bit about why um, many children flee to the U.S., and will give tips on how to work with um, youth, immigrant youth in particular, and then um, start to talk about, you know, how would you work on a case, draft supporting material, and then particularly today go over special immigrant juvenile status. There is a part two where she will continue to talk about other forms of relief and working with immigrant youth. But again, thank you all for being here and hope to um, connect with many of you soon. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thanks, Anita. A very kind introduction. Um, so thanks everyone for being here today. Uh, I wanna apologize for noise in advance. Um, I have a little construction unpredicted outside and you may be hearing a hello from my dog as well, but that's our, our new reality. So um, with that being said, just kind of wanna jump right into it because we have a lot to talk about. Um, so as Anita said, um, I manage the Justice for Immigrant Families program at PAIR. And we focus on representing um, youth and immigrant families in Massachusetts. And we are um, definitely seeing a, a, a large uh, increase in need, especially as immigration cases uh, tend to take longer through, to process through the immigration system. And so, um, you know, there is a significant need for, for pro bono services. So I appreciate everyone being here today. Um, just a quick note about taking a case through PEAR. Um, so PEAR provides mentorship and samples. And I just wanna emphasize that this presentation is sort of meant to be a precursor to, to taking uh, a case um, 
through pair and, and mentorship and not really supposed to be a standalone tool um, to, you know, this, this presentation doesn't assume any knowledge about uh, immigration and uh, representation in the immigration system. Um, but, uh, you know, that also means that we're not just gonna, we're simply not gonna be able to cover everything today. So here today, we're gonna try and like flag some things and give a broad overview. Um, if you were to take a case through pair, uh, we also have a manual that does go into a lot of that greater detail. We do one-on-one -on -one mentorship. Um, and would also, you know, just generally what it would involve is appearances in immigration court and often family court as well, working with interpreters and sometimes working with non-legal providers. A lot of our clients come to us referred by schools, hospitals, um, non-immigration service providers like uh, housing um, and eviction uh, services, for instance. Um, so that's just a little, a little snapshot of uh, working and representing clients through PAIR. Um, as Anita said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just go through a few immigration basics again, just to kind of give a, a brief lay of the land. It's not by any means meant to be uh, a, a deep dive into that uh, topic and talk about interviewing and working with children um, and then go through one form of relief, uh, more to follow next week, but the first one we'll, we'll be talking about is special immigrant juvenile status. So as I said, not assuming any knowledge of the immigration system for, for those present today, I just wanted to give, uh, you know, get on the same page about a few basics of the immigration system. So. Again, there are nuances and exceptions to this rule, but the three kind of basic procedural postures of an immigration case that someone like, for instance, that you might get a client, uh, represent a client in are someone in removal proceedings. So that removal is the word we use for immigration court. So that is somebody who's been detected by immigration officials or charged with being removable or deportable uh, more colloquially from the US. Someone who's maybe already been ordered removed, either gone through that process, or sometimes there's something called an expedited order of removal at the border. So they have a deportation order that if they were theoretically detained or intersected with immigration, that could be carried out and they could be removed from the United States. And then there is a third category that um, is sort of the everything else. So someone who's never been detected by immigration officials, or at least not in removal proceedings or not with a, a removal order. And so, as we'll talk about status today, you know, the status that we might be seeking for a young client would try to, you know, would be in the context of one of these three case postures. Um, immigration proceedings, removal proceedings, again, the most basic uh, pieces of sort of understanding how to navigate that is that it's initiated with something called a notice to appear. I would say that's most akin to um, like a charging document that you might see in criminal court. Uh, it says why DHS, Department of Homeland Security, thinks someone is subject to being removed or deported from the United States. It usually looks like, you know, you're a native and citizen of Guatemala, um, you're not a citizen of the U.S. You entered via, for example, Hidalgo, Texas, on or about you know June 1st, uh, not with a visa, for instance. Um, there's something called master calendar hearings that are like status conferences, which I think is the 
term most used in non-immigration world, um, where you give updates to the judge and kind of lay out how the case you know, is hoping to go forward. These are kind of getting phased out with some new rules in, uh, or new guidelines, if you will, in the immigration court. But um, again, just to flag those for you. And then a case in immigration court usually ends with an individual hearing of some sort. So that's where it is um, you know, no longer status conference, but just the merits of the individual case are being heard by the immigration judge, who we also refer to as the IJ. Lots of acronyms in immigration. A few categorizations that are important to, again, just have verbiage for. Uh, when we refer to child in the immigration system, that's legally defined as someone who's under 21 and unmarried. Uh, on the other hand, accompanied versus unaccompanied minor is a little different. So an unaccompanied minor, um, often referred to as a UC or UAC, is someone who is under 18 and not accompanied by a parent or legal guardian. Um, the reverse is true. Someone who's accompanied is under 18, uh, but with a parent or legal guardian. Um, and that categorization generally takes place, uh, but not necessarily, uh, when someone is first detected by immigration. And that often happens when they're um, entering the United States, often via the southern border. Um, I'm not going to get into the details of how someone could change status is here. Um, I think what's most important for our discussion, our discussion next week, is that if someone's designated unaccompanied, that designation becomes important for asylum relief. And I'll get into that in a little bit later. Um, and then certain immigration statuses, we, we kind of use status, defense to removal, applications for relief, all interchangeably. Um, but when someone's in immigration court, they have to put on a defense to removal. And one of those defenses could be special immigrant juvenile status. Um, it's a little bit unique than some of the other statuses that we're going to talk about in that it's not in it of itself a final status per se. It is a pathway. It's a qualifying status to permanent residency, other known, otherwise known as a green card. Um, it's premised on, and this is what we're gonna talk in more detail about today, um, that reunification of the child with their one or both parents is not viable and that their best interests are not served by being returned to their country of nationality. Um, there are some other forms of relief that we're gonna talk about next week, asylum, U visas and T visas, they're not specific to children like special immigrant juvenile status is, but there are certain rules or um, provisions that are specific to children that are good, helpful to know. Um, asylum is someone, it, you know, is premised on uh, fear of return or persecution in the past in the country of origin. And that's where, again, that unaccompanied designation becomes important. U visas are based on um, being the victim of a crime and cooperating with law enforcement, and T visas are based on being the victim of trafficking. Um, there are certain rules about the intersection of immigration status applications and 
and uh, where they get filed. And so when someone, as I referred to, when someone's in immigration court or EOIR, you're defending against removal. So the application is called defensive. When someone is not, have it has not been detected by immigration before isn't in immigration court, it's called affirmative. You're um, applying to the agency. Uh, and that's because again, you're not defending against active deportation. And so there are a couple of factors. And again, this is again, just like some flags for the future, not supposed to be like a deep dive into any of this, but the factors that determine where certain applications get filed are what type of relief you're talking about in the first place. So certain forms of relief always, no matter what, go to certain places. So the SIJ application, special juvenile application will always go to the agency. Um, some forms of relief may go to either, depending upon whether removal proceedings are active again. And then um, lastly, getting into the weeds a little bit, this unaccompanied designation and this and what's called an arriving alien designation could affect where certain applications are filed. So again, I just wanted to like flag those without um, needing to kind of go into all the detail about it, but it's important for our subsequent conversation here. Um, last but not least, uh, as I mentioned, there's sort of a, a trend towards phasing out master calendar hearings, the status conferences that I mentioned. And I should take a step back. I, I think I wanted to flag a few things here because immigration status seems, or sorry, the, the immigration system and the guidelines that are implemented and, and frankly, whether um, the practices of every judge are very dynamic and continue to change, um, which is why we do provide close mentorship. Um, but uh, there, these are all kind of factors that, that seem to be constantly in flux. And so uh, we wanna emphasize that, you know, what is said today about timing and, and styles of like preferences of like docket management in the court uh, may not be true tomorrow. Um, so with that caveat, um, I just kind of you know, keep that in mind as we're going through our discussion here. Um, there's also been recently in Boston in the Boston Immigration Court an increased use of video judges around the country. So not judges physically sitting in the Boston Immigration Court. Um, that also makes practice a little bizarre when, um, uh, especially in the paper world where immigration court has historically all been on paper if things are having to be sent to different parts of the country for judges zooming in to Boston. Um, like I mentioned, different styles of docket management um, and I'll kind of reference that in a little bit later. There's. I think most importantly, there's an increased use of prosecutorial discretion, which means um, essentially coming to an agreement with the Department of Homeland Security uh, trial attorney, the opposing side in immigration proceedings about um, relief or about procedural postures or termination um, of cases in immigration court. Um, though it is not as transparent of a process um, as maybe uh, it could be. Um, so again, that requires some navigation and mentorship. 
Um, but all of this really goes without saying that it is extremely difficult to navigate the system without counsel. And so um, again, why, why we encourage pro bono representation and provide mentorship. Um, so changing gears here a little bit, I wanna talk about style and strategy of interviewing children. And you know, lots of us have kids and um, you know, so that counts for something in working with uh, child clients for sure. But I think it, it, you know, it's worth being reflective for a minute on, on those habits that maybe we practice with our own families uh, and how we um, you know, work with child clients, especially uh, when there may be cultural differences um, from our own. So uh, before an intake begins, um, you know, we, all of the families that we work with are, have been screened you know, as low income. So they, it means they have a lot of demand in their lives, um, families may be working multiple jobs, um, you know, juggling childcare uh, and other responsibilities. So we just ask folks to be understanding. Um, consider gender dynamics. Um, our clients come often come from communities where uh, gender roles are more. Uh, are very solidified and and maybe more diverse or, than the ones that um, the attorney or um, that we're you know accustomed to. We just be sensitive to it, um, especially when topics like sexual assault or sexual orientation may come up in a conversation. Um, and consider room dynamics. I mean, we're we're used to working with clients, um, but maybe we need to adjust a little bit for child clients. So one might consider dressing less formal, uh, be cognizant of the seating arrangements. I really, really try to avoid sitting across the table from a child and, and, and truthfully any client um, to make sure that that physical barrier um, doesn't create kind of a barrier in the conversation either. Um, starting an intake, this is just uh, a style preference, but I find that it works. So uh, oftentimes with our child clients, there's some kind of parent or sponsor, an adult in their lives um, that comes with the child to our office to meet with us. Um, you know, obviously you want to introduce yourself and anyone working with you and explain your role to the entire family, uh, but also explain the confidentiality rules if you are representing the child only, let's say, that your confidentiality is due to the child, um, even though they are a minor and um, may have adults that are playing a role in their lives. Um, I'm going to talk about, you know, honesty and openness. Um, you may even kind of share some personal details about yourself to break that ice talk about expectations. Um, a lot of our clients have never, I would say most of our clients have never been in a meeting with a role with a lawyer and they're not really sure what to expect and it can be really intimidating. Um, also please be cognizant that uh, many folks are may not be literate in their own native language. And so um, email or even text or 
um, sitting down to read a document or handing a written document to a client uh, may not work for that client, uh, and but they also may be reluctant to tell you that. Um, with the child, we want to, you know, so so let's say that once that general explanation has been given to the family at large and you sit down with a one-on-one -on -one or maybe you're working with an interpreter to a one interview with the child client, we're going to re-emphasize certain things. Um, confidentiality for one, um, asking someone permission to take notes, just being like extra transparent about everything you're doing. Um, and, and then you know, why you need to take notes. Um, a note about working with interpreters. Um, it may be something that folks are accustomed to, um, but uh, I think it's I think it's worth thinking about that again with child clients especially. Um, we want to explain the interpreter's role and that they also are bound by the confidentiality that we as lawyers are bound by. Um, be careful to talk directly to the child. Sometimes it's tempting to talk to the interpreter, tell him, tell her, tell them. Um, but instead of, instead of using that language, just speak directly to the client. The interpreter is just there to interpret directly in the first person um, that you're using in your conversation. Um, I'm going to face and like use body language that shows the child that, you know, we're listening when they speak. Um, because of interpretation challenges, you want to also be able to speak in short sentences and simple words and, and use pauses. Uh, and that means we may need to ask the child to pause too so the interpreter can interpret and, and don't be afraid to kind of give that direction to everyone involved in the conversation, even if it requires a few times, but let people know that, you know, if you have to cut them off or the interpreter has to cut them off for, for interpretation, that they should, you know, pick up where they left off. Um, I've been in, you know, enough meetings with an interpreter where I, I sometimes noticed, you know, some weird dynamics that I think it is good to be conscious of. So certainly there are different you know, I often am working with Spanish-speaking clients, just for example, and there are different um, dialects um, and words may have different meanings. And so if something isn't sounding right or making sense, uh, don't hesitate to kind of ask, ask for clarification because it could be something going on there. Um, there's also cultural and power dynamics. Um, I see this really often if I, for example, if I have um, an interpreter who is um, you know, Spanish speaking from Spain um, and they're, you know, Castilian Spanish may be different than, you know, Central American Spanish, or if the, someone grew up speaking either a mix or only an indigenous language, for instance, and are just kind of learning to pick up Spanish here um, you know, be, be aware that there could be some power dynamic uh, going on that the person whose conversation is being interpreted, the client or the client's family that is being interpreted may be hesitant to correct or uh, ask for clarification uh, from, you know, the, the interpreter. Um, 
And you know, just use child-friendly language. I think I think that's true even for adults. Um, we want to make sure our clients understand what's happening, the process, and the process is really complicated and hard. And we may not get it right the first time explaining, and or our clients may ask us lots of times to explain something we've already explained, and that's fine. That's normal. Um, but we want to make sure we're using really simple language. Um, on the flip side. I want to make sure the the interpreter understands all this too. So it's a good idea to meet with the interpreter beforehand and explain some of this. And also just, you know, not in an insulting way, just kind of in a in a try in a helpful, caring way, explain to the interpreter that we want to make sure that their body language, their reaction to um, sometimes really difficult stories is appropriate and doesn't um, cause any negative responses in the storyteller and the client or their families. Um, a few more tips about speaking to children. So I've referenced, you know, there may be cultural norms. Um, most of our clients are coming to the United States to flee violence. So violence has been really normalized for them um, they, or, and or they may not see their experience as abusive or violent. So uh, I often find myself, uh, you know, disobeying all those rules that I was taught in law school about, you know, ask open-ended questions that often doesn't work. Um, what was it like growing up? Generally doesn't uh, solicit a really detailed answer. Uh, I generally have to revert to more specific questions like, did anyone hurt you that you lived with? Um, what did your father do if you did something he didn't like? Um, being very specific and, and leading, in fact, will get you farther. Uh, you know, not to say that open-ended questions aren't helpful. I think they are helpful when you want to kind of round off your conversation and see if anything has been missed. Uh, but they may not in a uh, you know, conversation with, especially with a new child client, um, get you a lot of information. Um, obviously try to show empathy, um, take breaks. Sometimes clients don't wanna take breaks because they have other like pressing things that have to happen in their lives and that's understandable too, but let them know, you know it's, it's an option and you know, it may just be helpful. Um, and consistently remind about confidentiality. I think when, um, you know, recently I had an experience where we've been working with a young client for several months, getting ready for uh, his final hearing about asylum and some weird discrepancies were coming up in our final practice for, you know, testimony. And it, came out that, you know, he had forgotten, you know, I, we had explained it at one point, but a lot, we had explained a lot of things and, you know, it's a lot of information for anyone to digest, but he had not really digested the confidentiality piece. And he was afraid to talk about the identities of the gang members that had killed his brother um, for fear that it would get back to them and, and cause harm to his family who remained in his home country. So you don't want those kind of barriers to exist if you can help it. And it's helpful to like continue 
uh, reminding your client about that confidentiality, as well as, and, and this is something that we can talk about, you know, in mentorship, where um, the proceeding before the court and the immigration agency also has its own confidentiality provisions, which clients are often interested in knowing. Um, talking about legal relief, this is, I would say, always something that I have to explain multiple times. Um, you also have to remember that like clients um, and their families came with their own conceptions and sometimes misconceptions of certain legal relief and pathways. And even after you may explain something, they could go back into their community to and hear something different. And, you know, so that's why repetition and, you know, increased clarity about what pathway we're taking, what this next hearing is about, um, is going to be helpful, but also necessary. Um, when you're talking, when you're asking certain questions, especially the sensitive, hard questions, it may help to explain why you're asking them, not for um, you know, your personal curiosity, but because this is something that uh, will either help their case uh, or that a judge would also wanna know and you, you wanna understand how they might answer certain questions. Um, older children, especially, or sometimes family members, will likely ask about work permits or work authorizations, also known as an EED. Um, in Spanish, it's often referred to as a permiso um, because work is so important to sustaining someone in the United States, you know, even children who are forced to, um, you know, contribute to their support and, and stability in the household. Um, for special immigrant juvenile status, and, and this will make more sense when we talk about the forms of relief um, in more detail, uh, you're trying to explore why they can't reunify or why it's not viable for them to reunify with their parents due to abuse, abandonment, or neglect by a parent. And there's often this tension of, well, how either how they treated me was normal or they mistreated me, but I still care about them. I still feel like I, um, you know, owe them respect and, and, and support and what have you. And, and that's okay to have those kind of feelings that may seemingly be intention. Um, and you want to acknowledge that and that when you're asking questions to solicit those kinds of narratives, um, you're not asking them, nor are you passing judgment. You're just trying to gather facts. And the same is true for asylum cases where um, you're trying to gather facts about you know intimate details of someone's life and um, you know understand how it impacted them. Um, considering trauma while interviewing uh, a child, and I think while this is especially true for a child, again, this is true for for any client. Um, the client, you know, could. Is, is probably gonna be reliving the trauma while they're retelling um, you their narrative. So you wanna check in, um, again, ask if breaks are necessary, but maybe just ask if people are, are doing okay. Um, and you know, stop and be reflective rather than just kind of like jumping into the next topic. 
um, if an issue is difficult, timelines and dates can especially be difficult. Um, you know, you can try a few things, you can age or grades people were in in school when something happened, but don't get stuck on it. it sometimes it just may, um, you know, be better to move on. Clients can get really frustrated and get down on themselves when they can't remember something and your continued asking like makes them realize that you know, like maybe it's important and I can't remember and so I'm you know doing a disservice to myself and that again that those negative feelings don't help the conversation so you know move on and, and circle back if possible but um, you know let them know that uh, you know inconsistent information or you know difficulties and timelines are normal and okay. Um, acknowledge if someone is nervous or quiet and that that's okay and normal, that may help sometimes, sometimes not, to kind of break the ice a bit. Um, don't be afraid of silence. Um, and just be warm and inviting and, and let the child direct the conversation. Um, you know, I, was also taught in law school to always, you know, try to go in like linear chronological uh, directions in, um, in, in client interviewing. And while that's certainly helpful, um, it can also be difficult when a client is reliving trauma and may not want to dwell on a certain subject. It's also just not how um, many of our clients in, in their culture and their community were um, brought up to think. And so it's okay to like be circular and, and circuitous, you know, if necessary. Um, at some point, especially when, when working with, you know, younger child clients, you may need to transition from interviewing the child to talking to the adult in their life. Um, but first explaining, you know, why, what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, and that means, uh, you know, explaining that you're going to, is it okay to um, talk to mom or dad or sister or whoever is waiting for you outside? Um, remind them that, you know, without their permission, you can't disclose the subject of your conversation uh, with that person. Um, explain that same thing to the adults, you know, that you can't talk to them about the subject of, you know, your conversation, but, you know, you may need more information on a certain topic um, and give the child, you know, chances to, to ask questions. And I will say with like, before, I, I should have said this earlier, before breaking into the, you know, separate conversations with child and adult, um, you wanna let make sure that, that the child is comfortable with that. Um, there are gonna be situations where the child feels obligated to say no to that question. And that's just gonna be some instinct that you have to develop over time, whether they're saying no because they feel obligated to say no, meaning they wanna have a conversation with the adult present um, or where they actually say no. I find you know age is often um, imperative in evaluating that situation. If you have a five-year-old client, you're not going to interview with them by themselves. If they're like you know 12, 13, 14, you know that's kind of like the gray area where um, you know at least a little bit of interviewing by themselves 
uh, I think is probably necessary. There are also, you know, regrettably some situations where the adult um, who has brought them to your office may not be the most trusted person in their lives. And we just can't know that um, about the situation until we've had a chance to talk to the child by themselves. Um, a few more notes about talking to parents or sponsors, again, the sort of other adults uh, in the child's life. Um, the adult, as I said, may not know like all the details of a child's life and, and we should not be disclosing that to them. We have that duty of confidentiality to the child client. Um, when we're talking to the client, we don't want to just focus on the legal case too. Uh, it's important to ask about their daily life. Um, the thing that comes up the often, the most often is reunification issues. Um, general, and what I mean by that is that often a young person comes to the United States thinking that things will be great and life will be easy, but, um, and they aren't. And jumping into a new household with people you don't know is, is, often, is also hard. So that should be a subject of conversation. Um, there may also be, you know, if they're, if they're living with a parent or if their parent is in the United States, but maybe not living with the child, we wanna know, you know, what prompted the, the parent to leave the country of origin because that may be um, relevant to the child's story, even if the child isn't aware of it. Um, and also on the, the corollary is figuring out the family that's still in the country of origin, um, how they're doing. Uh, and then without putting anyone on guard to you know, be afraid to disclose their immigration status, we wanna know what the immigration status is of, of other family members, just again, for context, uh, if somebody you know, could have a pathway through a family member, we'd want to know that. If somebody is pursuing an asylum case that is, could be you know, related or identical to our client's case, we'd want to know that too, to, you know, under, to be presenting consistent stories to the same adjudicator, for instance. Last but not least, um, wrapping up an intake, uh, we're going to give some time to, for everyone to decompress. By that, I mean, you know, take a minute to pause. Don't just kind of like launch into the, okay, and we'll see each other next week um, dialogue. Debrief, um, you know, we can, we can talk about, if, if you're not sure kind of what that would look like uh, in a given situation, we can kind of walk you through that. Um, try to end on a positive note. <laughs> Sometimes again, really intense stories can be shared in these meetings, um, but try to, you know, if nothing else, remind the clients of their resilience. Um, let ask them if they have questions. And again, it's okay if those questions have already been answered, give space to, to let them be asked and addressed again. Um, address any deadlines. Don't make promises. We don't want to guarantee any result. Um, and then, um, you know, ask to look at, you know, collect documents that need to be scanned. That's an important one that you and I sometimes forget to overlook. Um, 
and explain what will happen next. Sort of like next steps are often on everyone's mind and ask the child for permission or if they want you to talk about those next steps with the adult um, that may be present with them at the meeting. Um, sometimes the, you know, we're gonna have another meeting on this date or I would really help if you could send me this piece of paper that you, you didn't bring today is at home. Um, sometimes those uh, procedural type reminders are helpful to share with the child client's permission. Okay, so um, I'm try to run through this kind of quickly and, and I'm gonna do it quickly because I think you know, this is again, the, the technical legal status um, that you know, PAIR will provide mentorship and step-by-step -step and examples of. Um, it's really just to kind of give a flavor of, of what kind of, what the work will be in taking on um, a child client through, through the PAIR project. So many, but not all of the child clients we work with are eligible for special immigrant juvenile status. Um, generally speaking, what is it? As I mentioned earlier, it's a pathway to permanent residency, which is also known as the green card. Um, without, again, getting into the weeds of this, it is subject, so to get the green card, that is subject to what we call per country cap. So there are more people applying from the countries that are listed there, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, and Mexico, than there are approvals, spaces available um, on a yearly basis. So um, I'll show the sort of a diagram or a visual better later, but um, it means that there's a backlog for those countries. So we may be pursuing a pathway through special immigrant juvenile status or SIG, but it may be that we can't get that ultimate green card until sometime down the road. And what that means, um, in reference to some of the immigration stuff we talked about earlier, is that maybe other relief might have to be pursued as well. And depending upon an individual, if the child is in immigration removal proceedings, um, depending upon the immigration judge's style and preference of docket management, may mean that we need to get continuances um, or seek some kind of closure of the case until um, that backlog can be advanced to make the client eligible for their green card. So I'm just listing like the basic requirements here as listed in the statute. So again, it's someone that someone is a child, so that they're unmarried and 21, like we talked about earlier, and that three determinations have been made by a state court. And we'll talk about what we mean by a state court in just a minute. So that there, someone is either dependent or in the custody of another individual or agency, that reunification with one or both parents is not viable due to abuse, abandonment, neglect, or something similar, and that it's not in the child's best interest to return to their country of nationality um, or their parents' country of nationality. And this is just a kind of a, a visual, a chart to, to think about how we think about SIJ was it's essentially three steps. So first is going into state court and obtaining special findings. We'll talk about that shortly. Um, we, get, we, we hope to come away from state court with an order 
laying out all those statutory factors that we just covered. We then take that order and put it with the immigration application form that's called the I-360 and send it to immigration. And if that's approved, then that makes us eligible for the last stage of getting the green card. And so this is where um, the green card is also application is also known as the I-45. All the immigration forms have different numbers um, in no particular order. Um, this is where there may be a backlog that may delay uh, access to this final step. And it also maybe before the judge or maybe before the agency, depending upon those other factors that we talked about earlier, if someone's in removal proceedings or not, and whether they're designated an arriving alien or not. Um, when taking a special juvenile case, we have to assess what is the most appropriate means to get the special findings, those statutory requirements in an in a order from a judge, um, where it's most appropriate to seek them from. The two options are Massachusetts probate and family court or juvenile court. And every now and then we'll come across somebody who already has a case pending. And you know, unfortunately the, the most likely situation where that happens is where there is some kind of um, concern for the child's welfare happening. So it may be that they have, I'm kind of fast forwarding to the bottom list here, that um, there's a truancy case or be, uh, behavioral concerns or neglect um, that has prompted the state to open what's called a craw in juvenile court. There's a care and protection where there's child protective services that we call DCF in Massachusetts, um, DCF involvement. Um, perhaps DCF is trying to uh, take custody, uh, even if just temporary, of the child, or there is um, delinquency or what we call youthful offender uh, case pending um, for a, an alleged criminal behavior. So it's the, those cases are sort of already pending. Those are types of cases that would be filed by the state um, or state agency. Uh, we can insert ourselves into those those proceedings and and do and get the the findings, the judge judicial order that we need. Otherwise, we might be initiating uh, a case for the for the child and their family. Or again, like maybe something is already pending, but usually not. Um, and that type of case, one of the ones listed here in uh, under probate and family court, um, has to match the family dynamic of of the child and their family. So just to give you an example, uh, to seek guardianship, meaning legal custody of a child, um, a child under 18, it needs to be a non-parent seeking that custody of the child. So if the child is living with mom or living with dad, 99% um, of the time, as long as mom or dad has like the capacity to care for the child and is caring for the child, guardianship would not be the, the most appropriate pathway to um, seek special findings. Um, if child's living with mom, let's say, um, then you might consider um, seeking sole custody through what we call a 209C complaint. So again, we'll get into the details of 
of like each type of complaint specifically in, in individual mentorship. I just kind of want to give the flavor here of what, uh, how we make those determinations about what is the most appropriate um, state court action to get the findings for SIJS. Um, to make those assessments, again, you're going to just, I gave examples already, which you're going to think about who does the child live with? How are they related to that person? Um, who supports them and, and who does a child feel safe with? Okay. Um, a lot of times children will be, especially unaccompanied children will be released to an individual um, by the Office of Refugee Resettlement. And um, that individual may be someone that the family, the greater family as a whole decided was the uh, safest to put on paper to a federal agency. Um, which is fine, but it may not be the person who is actually taking care of the child. And so um, it often happens that someone who is documented or quasi-documented is put on the paper, but actually mom or dad or somebody who's undocumented may be actually caring for the child. And it's okay not to have those two um, comport, meaning what we the caretaker that we seek to solidify through a state court adjudication does not have to comport with what immigration was once upon the time told at the border when the child entered the United States. More than anything, we wanna make sure the child's like welfare is preserved and that they are, the person who's actually taking care of them is given like the legal ability to take care of them. Um, going through the SIJ factors of like, whether abuse, abandonment, or neglect occurred. It may not have even occurred by the mother or father. It may have occurred by other household members. Uh, so we want to explore all of that. Um, you know, who, who's the mother and father? Who's on the birth certificate? Those things don't always match. Um, are parents married, divorced, maybe never married, alive, deceased? Um, try to figure out like a chronology, again, to the best of the child's ability of who they lived with and when and where everyone lives now. Um, what was the relationship like with the parents? Um, was it different than someone's siblings? Like was your client's relationship different with the parents than, than their siblings relationship? Um, how did treatment differ or was it similar? Um, did anyone mistreat the child like outside of the home, for instance, and did the parents know? How did they react? Um, who made the decision to um, for the child to come to the US? And I think most important when going through all of this, again, is like remembering that we're not asking a child to pass judgment. And you may have to say that explicitly um, because we want to know the facts and not and it, how they feel about that person in spite of whatever treatment they may have or not have received. Um, it is important, but it is not um, at the end of the day what we're asking them to communicate to us. We just have to solicit facts about the case. And then thinking about the last factor of whether it's someone in someone's best interest to return to their country of nationality. So, I always think of it as, as kind of like two categories, like what happened to the child? Um, okay, I guess you could think of three categories. What happened to the child when 
um, they lived in their country of origin, their country of nationality. Uh, and then is that the same or different than what could happen if they returned? Um, and what like good or honestly bad, but hopefully good things are going on here in the United States. But opportunities might they have? What are their hopes for the future? We want to, you know, elaborate all of that in um, the affidavit, which is kind of the goal of all these questions is to eventually form an affidavit. So in the state court process, um, the main components of a filing are going to be like, again, figuring out what that family composition is and, and how it uh, what makes the most sense to file in court um, to solidify their custody and or dependency if they are some and someone who is between the ages of 18 and 21, um, which I'll, I'll talk about in just a minute. Um, the basics though are the complaint. And again, maybe do you need like a temporary petition because there's an emergency? Like let's say the child is about to have medical care and there is no formal guardian um, the guardianship process might take several months. You might need a temporary guardian in the meantime if, if some really important decisions are coming up in the child's life. So there may be a temporary orders that you want to seek. There may be a cost to the filing. It's not much, but um, an affidavit of indigency is an option for filing, meaning to waive the filing fee. Identity documents. Uh, motions, uh, especially the motion for special findings and the legal memo. That's kind of where we merge the immigration piece with the family court piece uh, and the affidavits from the people with knowledge about the case that may be the child or that may be um, an adult in their lives. Um, I missed a slide here. Yes. Okay. So affidavit, we're going to like put all of that information that we have gained, or at least the information that comports with the legal re requirements that we're trying to show into an affidavit. And it may not all be in the child's affidavit. We may have to combine some from the child and some from another adult who has information that's relevant. Let's keep uh, going too fast here. Um, it is extremely helpful to read through these three cases. These are cases from what we call the Administrative Appeals Office, which is kind of an appellate unit of US citizenship and immigration status that adjudicates the SIJ petitions. Um, these are three cases from Massachusetts explaining about explaining what and what does not suffice for um, a good case, essentially, in Massachusetts. Uh, for SIJS. And uh, it's certainly not an exhaustive list by any means, but uh, it is necessary to read before drafting up um, your complaint and your affidavits. Um, in addition to, well, what we want to walk away from court with, in addition to just like the judgment, so a judgment of custody, a judgment of guardianship, a judgment of divorce or a judgment of dependencies. So some, some judgment, again, that is identifying and relating to the family composition. You also wanna have what we call the special findings order, which is the order that's going to go to the immigration agency to qualify your client for special immigrant juvenile status. And um, yeah, it's like a 
few page document where you're summarizing legal requirements and you're summarizing the factual um, issues presented in the affidavits that you've drafted, um, citing to state law, not immigration law, um, and emphasizing that the orders being given by the court are ultimately for the protection of the child given the negative experiences that they may have had in their lives. Um, again, I don't think we have the space to, to go into all the detail today, but in Massachusetts, custody cases, so I'm talking about guardianship, custody, um, are relevant to children who are under the age of 18. And that is like a, a state court, def, a state law definition. Child in Massachusetts is someone who's under 18. The oddity is that child, as we referenced earlier, under immigration, under the immigration federal law is someone who's under 21 and unmarried. And so, you know, what happens to that chunk of young people who are a child for immigration, but not for state court? We have something called a 39M dependency um, complaint that can be filed where individuals are seeking orders of dependency um, for the state for on the state court, but also asking for referral to services, social services, counseling services, um, perhaps like domestic violence services. Um, again, something that we can flag, but may be relevant to your client depending upon their age and again, their family composition. Um, filing in court, if anyone's been to probate and family court, you know that it requires some, um, you know, uh, savoir faire and like navigating your way through uh, a less than transparent uh, filing environment, maybe some courts more than others. Um, again, this is something that we would walk you through with your case, but ultimately you want to get a summons or citation because service of the case has to be accomplished. Uh, there are some, some exceptions to service, perhaps in guardianship cases, um, but again, we, we can leave that for like one-on-one -on -one mentorship. Um, it often comes up in the client interviewing, why, why does my family court case have to be served? Like we're often talking about a, a parent who has abandoned the child and has not been in this child's life for many years, if not forever. Um, and so the idea that we have to serve a complaint on that estranged individual is a little bizarre. Um, you know, why am I trying to involve them in my life when they haven't been in my life for a long time? Um, totally understandable, but, you know, due process requires that we serve uh, the complaint upon the upon the parents, uh, or or absentee parent, if you will, and so there are a lot of uh, again nuances to service. If serve, sometimes we can publish depend publish notice in a newspaper. If uh, enhanced service can't be completed, depending upon the type of case, um, but 
talking about how to serve in the client conversation fairly early on is important because it may be that you know the client has to kind of mentally get on the same wavelength with you about that. That you know someone's going to have to figure out how to get in touch with this person um, or what the best mailing or email or WhatsApp address is for them, uh, and they may ask for you your help in in communicating um, with the defendant or um, family members who can get in touch with that. We, what we don't want to do is put our client in an uncomfortable or difficult position, or at least we want to help support them through that process. So um, again, just to kind of like give an example, someone hasn't talked to mom in, in 10 years. We think that mom lives with an aunt that has some communication with the child, you know, in Honduras you can offer to, you know, either directly or through an interpreter to reach out to the aunt to see how to get in touch with mom. Does she have um, an email address? Is there a store nearby the house where you could send documents? Um, but that may be, again, like just to give you an example of, of what kind of um, practical steps have to be taken uh, in, a, in terms of doing service for a probate and family court case. Um, there is often a hearing lately. Uh, many of the probate and family court judges are opting to do administrative, what we call administrative review, um, especially when there is no, uh, the case is uncontested. So let's say if you have a signature from a parent saying they don't contest a case or response time in a case has lapsed. They may consider the case uncontested and they may um, adjudicate it administratively. But let's assume you have a hearing, you know, the client, most, if not all hearings in family court are still happening by Zoom. Uh, so you'll be doing it from your office with the client and perhaps their family member there. And you wanna be prepared with kind of the, the basic um, one, two, three for, for the judge. You know, what are you talking about? How did service, happen and get accomplished because otherwise the case can't be adjudicated and, and a short summary of the facts and hopefully you'll walk away with what you need. Um, as I mentioned, in some cases there are uh, juvenile court uh, involvement, truancy, DCF involvement, delinquency. Um, in those cases, uh, the process is honestly uh, a bit more streamlined. So you're just gonna have a motion for the findings your client's story in the affidavit, the proposed order and where court allows it, a limited appearance. You're gonna work with all the parties already involved. So let's say it's DCF, the, DC, you know, the appointed attorney for the child, the DCF attorney at the very least, sometimes the attorneys for the parents get their consent and work with those individuals to get a date um, scheduled for adjudication of the matter. Um, I know we're, we're short on time, so I think I can wrap this up in about five minutes or less. Um, I would say, you know, that is going to be the bulk for the SIG case. The bulk of the work is the family court process, um, by and large. You're going to take the order that you get from the state court, put it together with, you know, a copy of the affidavit and, um, identification documents, your notice of appearance and the application form, send it to immigration. Um, 
if you walk away with nothing <laughs> else from this training, um, the most important thing to know is that the SIJ application has to be received, so actually like stamped as received before the child turns 21. Not that we want to like draw out a case from, you know, when someone is 10 until they turn 21, but we often have, you know, 19, 20 year old clients who are kind of pushing this timeline a little bit. Um, we have to, there's no mailbox rule in immigration, meaning it doesn't matter the day that it goes out the door. All that matters is the day that it gets stamped as received by immigration. Otherwise there's no jurisdiction to adjudicate relief for that young person. Um, these days, like 99% of the time, adjudications are just happening on the papers. There's no interview. I can't really speak to the timeline. It's kind of all over the place. And, um, you know, as soon as folks are receiving communications and immigration, I, I should have probably said this from the get-go, are all by paper. And I found that this becomes trickier when many of us are working from home in the current state of affairs. And so that is just to plug for when doing these cases, we do have to be vigilant about snail mail. Um, I mentioned the visa backlog and, and this is kind of like where I'll end. I'm not gonna get into the weeds of doing the green card application, um, but this is just to kind of give a snapshot of, of what I'm talking about. So this is a receipt notice, that thing that will come in the mail, one of the many things. Um, so when someone's special immigrant juvenile application has been filed and received. This will come back in the mail saying, you know, we've received it and here's the date. So received date you see in the middle there, July 15, 2019. That was the day that it was received. And the priority date is like your client's metaphorical place in the backlog. Um, presently, so this is November, 2000. 21. If my client is from El Salvador, Guatemala, or Honduras, they can have their green card adjudicated if they have a priority date of March 15, 2019, or earlier, or before, I'm sorry, before that date. And so someone who, as on the previous slide, had a July 2019 date is not gonna be able to get their green card yet. It is not an exact science. It's not like this date moves one month every month, calendar month. Um, it is something that per that link on the side there, we have to check every month to see how much it is advancing. Sometimes it does not advance at all. And sometimes it advances quite a bit. Um, and so it is very unpredictable and that is often not an answer that people like to hear, uh, but I think it's a good expectation to set. Um, once someone is eligible to move forward with their green card, um, you move on to that last phase there, uh, just to kind of put it back into perspective. I should also say that if your client is not from one of those four countries, there is no wait, there is no backlog. It can all be done, um, you know, together without delay between step two and step three here. Um, but given that many of our clients are from uh, the Northern Triangle countries, uh, we are often facing that delay and having to help them navigate that delay in the immigration court. 
Um, so that is where I will end. That was a lot of information. Again, I hope that it can complement um, uh, you know, us mentoring you on a case. And I will also mention that next, the November 17th at 12 is when the second part of this training about other forms of relief will be happening. And so now I'm gonna open it up to questions, though I may need um, Noah's help to help me navigate that. Yes, hi everyone. And so if you have any questions, feel free to use Zoom's um, Q&A function. You should see at the bottom of your screen. And um, so yeah, we'll just give it about a minute to see if any questions come in and go from there. But so far, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for the great presentation. <laughs> Thank you. And so should I, well, if, well, I see the Q&A if I, oh, I see it now, sorry. Oh, no, you're good. <laughs> no worries. But yeah, so we'll just give it about a minute or two and see and wait for people to ask their questions. No problem. I also didn't check. I know sometimes questions end up in the chat. Oops. Let's see. Um, so will we be emailed the slideshow? Um, I don't know, can, can, is that something that BBA can do? Yep, I can send it out if you're comfortable with the slides being said. Okay, great. Great, well, so we'll see if any, um, more questions come in, but um, in the meantime, um, do you have any final words or anything you would like to say? I think I'll just re-emphasize. I know that was a lot of information. Um, so I, I think it, it the goal was really to give um, an overview of the process of representing um, a child client in the immigration system in part through the SIJ process. So, um, you know, through, like as I said, there, there is a lot more detail to cover. And like, I think it would be helpful to do a deeper dive into like the samples of each kind of probate court um, case, for instance. Uh, it's just not something that we have uh, the time to do here today. So I'm happy to, you know, answer questions. I left my email uh, up here and um, hope that folks can reach out to us about cases. Um, so the question is, um, are we working with other, the immigration attorney working with another other counsel in the family court process? So gen if it's probate and family court where we are initiating the matter, um, let's say through a custody case or guardianship, uh, no. It's the immigration attorney, uh, that is our model at least, um, to do the entire case ourselves. 
Uh, if it is in juvenile court, on the other hand, where there are already um, state agency initiated proceedings and uh, court appointed attorneys for that process, in that case, yeah, we are uh, working with those state appointed attorneys on um, seeking special findings. So it depends a little bit on the process. Why SIG available? Oh, that's a good question that I kind of, I zoomed through. So we have a question of why is SIJ available with one parent? Um, that is because the statute, and I hesitate to subject you to me flipping back through the slides, but um, the statute 1101A27J says that uh, reunification is not viable with one or both parents. And so it has been interpreted that if a child is with one parent, but is unable to reunify with the other parent, that that still satisfies the language of the statute. Thank you for clarifying that. Okay, well, I believe that may be all of our questions for today. And I would like to thank you again so much for the wonderful presentation. And I also want to again highlight that part two will be on November 17th. And I'm dropping a link now into the chat so that um, you are able to register for that if you have not done so already. Super. Thank you so much, Noah. Uh, it was a pleasure to be here today. Take care, everyone. Of course, thank you so much and have a good rest of your day. Hope to see you all on November 17th.